According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. We started a series on Isaiah and Jeremiah. The goal is to cover one chapter per Sunday. That means 66 Sundays for the book of Isaiah and 52 Sundays for the book of Jeremiah. And so far, at least, O ye of little faith, the, uh, the Lord has allowed it to take place. Today we are in Isaiah chapter 18. Isaiah chapter 18, and do ourselves a huge favor here because it's only seven verses long, so have a chance to keep the pace going. Alas, alas, O land of warring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. All right, this gets a a good start to it. It's seven verses long. That's the first three of the seven verses we're going to cover here today. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In order to study the Word of God, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, that we have no unconfessed sin that needs to be resolved, so we have an opportunity to deal with that. And beyond being in fellowship, we want to be humble, that it is in humility we receive the Word implanted that is able to save our soul. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the blessing that we have to assemble together, for the grace provision you've given, Father. We think about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Father, I wouldn't trade the church for anything. The blessings to have a body of believers in Christ, the blessings to be baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with your Son, the blessings to operate within a flock, within a lampstand, where the Word of God goes forth, where the Holy Spirit communicates all things even the deep things of God. I thank you for living human spirits that the Holy Spirit can communicate with. And most of all, Father, I thank you for your Son, who is the head of the church, seated at your right hand and ever living to make intercession for the saints. We pray this morning that uh, the ministry of your word would be effective and powerful, that your Son would lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and that your Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding, that we might comprehend the length and width and height and depth I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 18 is a short, obscure message. And I hope we can maybe um, unskewer the obscure. I'm hoping that we can maybe bring into clarity what is otherwise rather enigmatic with respect to this powerful nation that's being rebuked in these seven verses. Chapter 18 is a short, obscure message that continues the context of chapter 17. And I believe, actually, it would even be preferable to uh, create a chapter division um, and take verses 12, 13, and 14 out of chapter 17 and go ahead and shove it forward into chapter 18 and might serve as a better introduction to the context and might serve, actually, to help frame 
the message better. We'll do that this morning. We'll give you the context of verse 12. They both jump out at you at these messages of woe. These messages in the Hebrew of hoy, of woe or alas. Messages that we saw a whole lot of back in chapter 5. Now we see more of them unfolding here in chapters 17 and 18. Um, again, alas or woe. The Hebrew is hoy, rather onomatopoetic in the sense that the word itself communicates the, the idea of the, it's like the, the oi <laughs> that you would have today, or oi ve, or hoy, okay? Uh, it, it is an expression of woe, it is an expression of uh, doom in many ways as it appears in the prophetic record. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies behind the rivers of Cush. This uh, chapter immediately jumps out as being different from the, uh, the messages that proceed. First of all, we have no proper name that's given. There is no proper name given in this text, simply called the land of whirring wings. And even that is under tremendous uh, manuscript question as far as whether we have the right wording, whether uh, the, the, the terms ought to be broken up into different terms. In fact, uh, article after article after article in the journals are dedicated to understand what the whirring wings are all about. And I'll give you a little bit of a synopsis here this morning, at least the conclusions I've come to in studying the, uh, the Hebrew text. But it is quite different. What have we been dealing with? We've been dealing with, remember, Philistia a few weeks back? Remember Moab? We had Moab in, in chapters 15 and 16 a couple weeks ago. We had Damascus, all right, in chapter 17. When we get through with this section, we're going to move on to Egypt, in, uh, in chapter 19, you notice the oracle concerning Egypt. Uh, it's not like the prophet Isaiah has problems naming specific nations. He's, he's not afraid to name names, <laughs> right? Or to assign particular rebukes to particular places. He can rebuke Babylon. He can rebuke Assyria. He can rebuke Egypt. But in this case, and a very similar one that's coming up in, in chapter 21, he does not cite a specific proper name. And I believe that that is of tremendous eschatological significance, all right? Um, so no national proper name governs this passage. It is left to um, Scripture as it's fulfilled to make clear in the fulfillment of this uh, what the nation of warring wings is all about, okay? And we'll explain that here in a moment as well. A similar anonymous oracle will come in chapter 21. I say it's anonymous because it's unnamed, uh, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as windstorms in the Negev sweep on, coming from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. Again, it's very anonymous, it's unnamed, and we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 21, as far as the context of what's happening there. As uh, finally, uh, the, the prophecy is so overwhelming that the prophet uh, Isaiah considers that he actually must be pregnant. <laughs> he must be going through labor pains because it hurts so much to, uh, to uh, receive a message of this nature, okay? Which as a male, I'm sure he had no context to try to <laughs> relate pregnancy to or the, the uh, pains of, of birth pains. And yet uh, that's what he deals with in 21.3. So uh, dealing with this message, O land of warring wings which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. We have the vocabulary that describes the whirring of the wings. The wings are simple. The wings is, a, is an easy word for wings, and we get that. But what is the term for whirring? What is the adjective that, that's describing, or the, the term that's describing these wings? In some cases, we've got cognate nouns that give us a little bit of help. 
Not so much. <laughs> okay. I would ask, here's a riddle for you. You can ponder this over dinner. What do crickets, symbols, and fishing spears have in common? Okay. What do crickets, symbols, and fishing spears, or harpoons, have in common? The harpoon, by the way, is the weapon of choice that uh, the Lord told Job if he was going to go hunt down Leviathan, the dragon, that he might want a, a harpoon to, uh, to capture Leviathan, to capture the dragon. So it's not just a small little fishing hook, all right? So what do crickets, symbols, and harpoons have in common? Well, they are all nouns that come from this noun. They come from the term we're looking at this morning in Isaiah chapter 18, an expression that sparks no shortage of debate and supposition and and quite a bit of speculation, as it were. And... um, they're all Hebrew nouns that come from the curious adjective in 18.1 that's translated either worrying or buzzing or uh, shadowing, okay? And uh, this even comes about by virtue of the fact that the root verb behind the noun is itself pretty um, ubiquitous in how it's used. Sometimes uh, of, a, of a boat, for example, that's floating on the surface of the water or something that is submerging beneath the water. Uh, in fact, quite a few of the uh, manuscripts struggle and try to put a boat in this verse in one sense or another. We'll talk about that as well. The fact is, those things have nothing in common. <laughs> okay? A cricket has nothing to do with a cymbal. You can clash cymbals together in your, your marching band and it makes a resounding noise and serves as a, a fine percussion accompaniment to whatever it is that you're, the, the music that you're portraying there. All right? But you don't go to sleep when the cymbals are crashing. You go to sleep maybe when the crickets are chirping. All right. And then how do we bring the harpoon into it? <laughs> so point being, it's a tough text. All right. It's a tough text and we don't get help from the etymology. We don't get help from cognate nouns. We don't get help from all the usual places we like to get help from. And so we may uh, try to turn to other uh, expressions as well and try to find how they handled it. How did the Septuagint handle it? How did the uh, ancient rabbis handled it in Jesus' day when they, were, when they were paraphrasing the Hebrew text into Aramaic. And when they wrote their commentaries, those are called the Targums, all right? And the Targums are often very useful. Aramaic is a cousin language to Hebrew. And uh, a lot of times the Aramaic Targums are marvelous commentaries that give you huge clues as far as what those Hebrew terms were dealing with. Both the Septuagint and the Aramaic Targums understood the expression in a boating context, which is uh, even more puzzling in some respects. Boats and uh, wings, in fact, rendering uh, the Lexham English Septuagint, if you have a copy of that, uh, Logos Bible Software published an English Septuagint, the Lexham English Septuagint renders this verse, wings of a land of ships, wings of a land of ships. So alas, wings of a land of ships, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. And so we end up with a message that's rebuking a country, a far country, a country that has naval power. We'll see more ship terminology. There's papyrus vessels in verse 2 on the surface of the waters. Nice place. You want most of your boats on the surface, okay? Um, But not all. And you say, well, it goes without saying, of course the ships are on the surface of the waters. Where else would they be? Well, in Isaiah's day, you're right. Where else would they be? They didn't have submarines back then. 
So why mention the surface of the waters in this verse? Likewise, uh, they weren't launching aircraft from ships back in Isaiah's day. And yet, what, what might we anticipate in an eschatological fulfillment? What might we anticipate if, in fact, this is, as we're going to see shortly, a message that pertains to the tribulation of Israel, a message that pertains eschatologically to the time of the end? Well, we might expect uh, wings and boats and uh, a powerful nation that spans the globe. We might expect to find a, a message like we find here in Isaiah chapter 18. So the Lexham English Septuagint renders this, wings of a land of ships. And that's certainly a strange combination in in a biblical study. Um, Boats and wings are certainly a a strange combination until the arrival of modern aircraft carriers, okay? Until the arrival of modern aircraft carriers. And this is where the commentators really struggle. And this is where um, we're going to relax about it. We're not going to struggle this morning. The reason why is that we're not going to submit to the sensationalism, all right? We're not going to market this book or this uh, chapter into a book and, and uh, start making the radio circuit and start promoting the latest and greatest uh, prophetic uh, money-making endeavors. If I was to do so, though, this would be a great chapter to use. <laughs> and uh, I'll explain that here shortly. Uh, point in fact, you're not going to get me on tape saying, I believe Isaiah 18 is rebuking the United States of America. All right? I'm not going to say that. I will, though, describe the text in such a way that should the trumpet sound today and should the church be removed today and should we be in a generation that is seeing the end-time fulfillments very quickly after the church departs, it would not shock me to find that the fulfillment of this will come about as a rebuke to the post-rapture United States of America. All right, And we'll, we'll spell a few more of those things out as we see the details here in... Uh, in the text. Why is a nation unnamed? A nation is unnamed if in fact it doesn't exist at the time the prophet is speaking to it. Okay? Or if in fact the territory where that nation comes from is not known in the known geography of the ancient world. See, sometimes we have prophecy and we're talking about the Moabites and the Ammonites. We're talking about Egypt. We're talking about the people that are living in the land at that time. That was the land of the Philistines back when the Philistines were around. You follow that? We don't have Philistines today. The Philistines are gone. But the land that the Philistines used to live on is featured eschatologically. That land, today we call it the Gaza Strip. That land still exists. The, the dirt didn't go anywhere. The land is still there. And so if there's a prophetic message that addresses the Philistines, it's very legitimate to evaluate and to see, well, who are the modern people that live on that land? And is there a fulfillment there related to the Gaza Strip, related to the West Bank, related to Jordan, related to Saudi Arabia, and so forth? And this is standard when we interpret prophecy in this way. But what do we do with a land that's not named? This land of warring wings, this land of winged boats, okay? What do we do with a land that's not given a proper name? How are we to understand that then, okay? And I think that the context here is going to help us out also. We're going to learn that uh, from the description of this land, how far away it is and how they project their power. How they project their power. That's coming up. Well, specifically we're told that they're a land of warring wings and we're going to have their population uh, spoken of here shortly as far as what they look like. Um, 
But first of all, where is their land? It lies beyond the rivers of Cush. Beyond the rivers of Cush. Now, we understand Cush is Ethiopia, and that's fairly universal. Not always. Some folks would move Cush over to the um, Saudi Arabian side, um, and it may be there were actually two Cushes, one on each side of the Red Sea. But the primary reference to Cush is beyond Egypt. When you, when you cross the Red Sea, if you're beyond the Red Sea, you're in Egypt. And if you're beyond Egypt, headed south, you're in Cush. All right? And if you're beyond Cush, who knows where you are, because nobody knows what's beyond Cush. That's the point. Beyond the rivers of Ethiopia references a distant land beyond the limits of known geography. A distant land beyond the limits of known geography. It's a way to express the farthest distance you know. In fact, we've got a parallel idiom in, uh, in its usage in Zephaniah 3 and verse 10, where we have uh, the expression that's used there as well. I don't know that we have something comparable today. Do we talk about something that's so far, uh, maybe, uh, you know, somebody moved to a, a new house and now they live so far out there, they're practically, do we have an idiom for that? Halfway to where? Keep it clean. Yeah, okay. Way out past Timbuktu or somewhere. Or, uh, I mean, you know, Timbuktu is not the, the furthest place away, but it is pretty far away, and it's hard to get there. Uh, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Get after Habakkuk. You get Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. In Zephaniah 3.10, we have the expression used as well. And it's talking about the, uh, the, the furthest region possible. Uh, Zephaniah 3, 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. In fact, if you want to judge all the nations of the earth, the best way to do it is to get them all together in the same place. Have them all gathered around like, say, oh, I don't know, Armageddon. All right, bring them all into one place where they will think they're going to have victory over the Jewish people. Gather all the armies together, and then Jesus Christ can smash them. And um, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning hour, for all the earth will be devoured my fire by the fire of my zeal. Then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call in the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From, now notice, beyond the rivers of Cush, or the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. It is an idiom that is used to describe just a land that's so far away it represents the maximum. It, re- it references a distant land beyond the limits of known geography. Now, it cannot reference Cush itself. That's where a lot of the, the uh, commentators go wrong. They get all excited about Cush, and they get all excited because Again, beyond the Red Sea is Egypt, beyond Egypt is Cush, and beyond Cush, nobody knows. Probably the, Cush probably knows who their neighbors are to the south, but nobody north of them knows. Historically, of course, I think it's remarkable that during this 8th century, in the 720s, 17s BC, at the very time Isaiah is speaking, at the very time they're terrified of the advancing Assyrians coming in, um, they might turn to Egypt for help, but Egypt has their own problems. As a matter of fact, Egypt has been overrun by Cush. And there's actually a, an Ethiopian pharaoh on the throne of Egypt at the time 
that, uh, that Isaiah is writing his, his prophecy. At, at this time, Egypt itself is under an Ethiopian dynasty. They are under the dominion of the Cushites just south of Egypt. And uh, if you want, it's the 25th dynasty, if you want to do more uh, on that, looking into the, the uh, historical record of Egypt related to that. Uh, Egypt will be the content of the next chapter. In chapter 19, it's the oracle concerning Egypt and uh, the warning not to put your trust in Egypt if you think Egypt is going to save you from the Assyrians or you think Egypt is going to save you from the Babylonians. Um, don't turn to human solutions to solve your problems. Trust in the Lord. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 19. But beyond the rivers of Cush does not reference Cush itself. I think that's, that's a misconception, and a lot of the commentaries go there. They, you can't be beyond a place and still be in the place. To me, that's just basic. And yet, a lot of folks try to twist it so that it is. Beyond Cush cannot be a reference to Cush itself. And to me, the expression beyond is beyond and is not inclusive of the, of the land that you're referencing. So, um, it cannot be a reference to Cush itself. And, and the description here as well. Um, as far as their ships, as far as their emissaries, as far as the, uh, the assignment that they've been given and what's going to happen here to them, doesn't fit historical Cush. Does not fit the Ethiopian people. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. We'll talk about the different types of ships and those that, I mean, papyrus is pretty light, okay? It's like paper, it's lighter than paper. The Egyptian uh, material on which they would write their scrolls and so forth. And they had very light boats made of reeds, okay? And uh, papyrus and different uh, materials, very light boats for river travel. Imagine around the Nile and so forth. And then you had other vessels for deeper waters, for the Red Sea, for the Mediterranean. And uh, this land has both. We'll talk about that. So uh, papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. The thing about the reed boats, the papyrus, that they were very fast. They were light, they were fast, they could get uh, you know, somewhere very quickly in it, and, uh, but not very far. You went for a longer journey across the open sea, you uh, would not be in one of these vessels here. But they send envoys, and then those envoys are turned around. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. And this is where, this verse here is where all the, the thousand variations of chapter 18 all hinge. It all hinges in the questions of how do you interpret verse 2? Do you, uh, how do you resolve the conundrums of verse 2? And depending on how you resolve each one, kind of impacts how you resolve the other ones. And how you resolve all of them together impacts how you understand the chapter. So it comes down here to, uh, I think, the, uh, the key to the whole, to all seven of these verses is right here in, in verse 2. Because what we're seeing happening is these envoys are being returned back to the land in which they came. Sea envoys, or envoys, however you want to pronounce that. Sea envoys become swift messengers returning back to the land which they came. And that's my conclusion, but that incorporates some, some of these puzzles I'm talking about, these questions you have to answer, anybody has to answer. 
Because there is a change of vocabulary. The Hebrew term for envoy is not the term for messenger. All right, it starts, they start off as envoys and then they become messengers, if you accept that understanding. And the term messenger is the term malak, is the term for angel, right? And they are swift. But first of all, this land of warring wings sends the envoys. There's no, nobody disputes that. What they do question, though, is are they the same ones that are being turned around and sent back home, which I believe, or are they uh, are, are different messengers being sent back to their land? In other words, we've uh, we've captured these envoys and killed them and or holding them or whatever, and we're going to send messengers of our own, and we're gonna we're gonna send our own messengers back to say, here's what we thought of your messengers and <laughs> and so forth. Where you sent us envoys, we're sending you angels. Okay, and so because the terms are different, to be fair, because the terms are different. Uh, there's an awful lot of uh, interpreters and pastors and scholars that, that view them as being different people. Okay? I believe the terms are different because the mission is different. The purpose is different. The assignment is different. They're being sent from this land of warring wings. They're being sent to Israel as envoys, butting into the world's business as they're fond of doing. But then they themselves are being dispatched back to be messengers back themselves back to the land that commissioned them, back to their own people. So go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. All right, now there's a description. And if uh, if you believe you can, beyond a shadow of a doubt, say, well, that... That description has to apply to the United States. It could never possibly apply to any other nation ever. Then, uh, then you'll be more dogmatic than I am. All right. Uh, I will show you the comparisons and the compatibility, but I'm not going to write a book and die on this hill <laughs> and say absolutely beyond question. This is uh, this is the United States in prophecy. Okay, I'm not going to say that. But let's look at it. Who are these people? And the other question is, are they being sent back to the land they came from or are they being sent to a different land? Okay? And there's a whole school of interpretation that's done that. That, okay, we've received envoys from the land of warring wings. Now, because they encouraged us so much, now we're going to send our own messengers to this third party. Assyria, Babylon, whomever. All right? Because, hey, we got, these guys got our back. They, they sent us their envoys. We're in good shape now. We're going to send messengers over to these guys now and tell them, hey, we're not afraid of you because our, our buddies over here are taking care of us. There's, an, there's a, uh, an interpretation matter there too. You follow what I'm saying? I'm trying to boil this all down into all the puzzles of verse 2. Are the envoys the same as the messengers? Are they the same or are they different? And... Um, if they are different, why are they different? And then the land that the messengers are sent to, is that the same as the land that uh, the warring wings uh, beyond Cush, the land that sent the envoys in the first place? And in my conclusion, you see it on the screen, that these sea envoys become the swift messengers and they return back to the land from which they came. And so the far distant land beyond the limits of known geography is furthermore described as a, la- a nation with inhabitants tall and smooth. 
big puzzle on what does it mean to be smooth, <laughs> okay? We can end up with a Bud Light commercial, rich but not smooth, okay? Smooth but not rich. What does it mean to be smooth? Because that adjective itself speaks of either hairlessness uh, or um, it could be a shining uh, people. However, shining headless or uh, hairless heads shine, okay? I won't ask for an illustration or a show of hands how it is that the hairless can shine. <laughs> this may be the Sunday that gets me fired. I don't know. Well, <laughs> we'll see what ends up happening on this. But trust me, all right, if, if I was of the sort that would love to stoke some sensationalism and write a book, I could do it in this chapter. And I could, I could, you know, start naming names and dating dates and all kinds of stuff about the United States and prophecy. I'll show you some maps and some pictures and some thoughts related to a people tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, to a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. And there has to be a significance to that description in verse 2 because what do we see in verse 7? We see the exact same thing. It's repeated a second time. It's how the chapter is concluded. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So the neat thing about this nation that the heavenly messenger, or that the uh, swift messengers are sent to is that they're being summoned to battle. They're going to be used by the Lord in the eschatological fulfillment of verses 4 through 6. But when it's all said and done, even they, even they, the remnant of those survivors, are going to come and worship Jesus Christ in His second advent. They are going to bring a gift of homage. And they're going to bring it to the dwelling place of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. To Yahweh, I'm sorry, Yahweh Tzavayoth the Lord of hosts. They will bring their tribute, their homage to Yahweh Tzavayoth, the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So, this far distant world power projects its power, projects its power via both brown water and blue water navy. I'll explain those terms if you're not familiar with them, but we see them in this passage. We see the papyrus vessel, John knows what I'm talking about. The navy guys here know what I'm talking about. All right, blue water is deep ocean operation. Deep ocean operation, that is from the farthest extent of the earth, sending envoys by the sea. Typically speaking, um, it was the fastest way to get somewhere in the ancient world, but you were subject to winds and storms and shipwreck and not getting there. And a more sure message could be carried overland in a caravan. It took longer, but if you had a large enough expeditionary force and soldiers and whatnot, you could, you could caravan it there and make sure the message arrived by land. Slower, but more certain. All right, and then we have these papyrus vessels. These are the lighter ones. These are the speedier ones. These are your river craft, okay? So we have both ocean vessels and river vessels. Blue water, brown water. That's what I learned years and years ago. Uh, brown water speaks of the rivers, the, the soil and the silt and the, the mud that, that come, uh, flows down the rivers and whatnot. So they, they ended up with these terms, the blue water navy, the brown water navy. Now what I've learned in recent years, they've coined a, a new, a green water navy, which 
I need to do more reading about. But anyway, um, we're just going to stick with what I know. We're going to stick with what the text here is dealing with. River vessels and ocean vessels and wings and aircraft from these vessels. Okay? And this is uh, what the land is being described with. Far distant world power projects its power, projects its power via both brown water and blue water navy. And you realize how rare this was in the ancient world. If you consider the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. Have we, have we reached one yet that projected its power navally? Projected its power by the sea? Even when the Romans had their war galleys, they, they, that's not how they projected their power. It was the legions. It was the Roman roads. It was the ground forces that projected its power. You have to really get into, say, the Middle Ages. You have to get into the Renaissance and get into the, uh, the, uh, the Venetian uh, sailing republics. You get into some of the maritime powers, get into Great Britain, get into the United States of America where you have nations that project their power globally by means of navy, not army. Navy takes center stage in the modern, in the modern uh, doctrines of war. How hard it is for me to say that. All right, I'm an army guy, but Navy is how power is projected globally. All right? And there's only a certain handful of countries can even sail a a blue water fleet effectively to be able to cover operations of that kind of distance, to be able to replenish at sea. Most countries can't do that. All right. The population of this far distant world power are tall and smooth, feared far and wide, a people powerful and oppressive, whose land, the rivers, baza. Not a normal word for divide. We've got a very standard Hebrew vocabulary for, for divide, and this isn't it. In fact, this chapter has more puzzles, more vocabulary puzzles than probably all the other chapters of Isaiah put together. Baza. Uh, to wash away, to flood, to to surge. All right. Interesting. Um, In the process of studying this, I was kind of struck in the sense that, um, I don't know if you saw it, a couple months back, there was an article about the American military that appeared and got a lot of attention, written by a French guy, written by a member of the French military who had served with American military forces in Afghanistan and who was tired of all the institutional America haters um, criticizing the American military for being whatever, right? Thugs and, 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 and whatever. And, and he actually was, was sick of it. He said, look, I served with these guys. They're the greatest military ever. You see the article? You know what I'm talking about? Well, just in case, I bookmarked it. And, and, okay, and I'm not interpreting prophecy by means of Google, okay? I'm not interpreting prophecy by means of current events. However, as I read this, chat, uh, this story, this was back in November sometime, December, December 15th, it hit me that what this guy is talking about is a nation tall and smooth, a powerful nation that's feared. And And by the way, this is in the Through the Bible Notebook too, not the story, but the, the understanding that Isaiah 18 could be an American reference in terms of our military might, our force projection, our uh, 
combat capabilities. So this, this, I first started chewing on this way back in 2002. Uh, this French guy says, we have shared our daily life with two U.S. units for quite a while. They are the first and fourth companies of a prestigious infantry battalion whose name I will withhold for sake of military secrecy. To the common man, it is a unit just like any other. But we live with them, we got to know them, and we henceforth know that we have the honor to live with one of the most renowned units of the U.S. Army. One that uh, the movies brought to the public as series uh, showing ordinary soldiers thrust into extraordinary events. Who are they, these soldiers from abroad? How is their daily life? And what support do they bring to the men of our, and this is his French unit, OMLT, every day? Few of them belong to the Easy Company, the one the TV series focuses on. This one, nowadays, is named Echo Company, and it has become the uh, support company. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. No, it was uh, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. forgot my old army vocabulary. Yeah, Echo in my generation instead of Easy Company back in World War II. Here we go. They have a terribly strong American accent. From our point of view, the language they speak is not even English. How many times did I have to write down what I wanted to say rather than waste precious minutes trying various pronunciations of a seemingly common word? Whatever state they are from, no two accents are alike. And they even admit in some crisis situations they have difficulties understanding each other. Heavily built, fed at the earliest age with Gatorade, proteins, and creatine, they are all heads and shoulders taller than us and their muscles remind us of Rambo. Our frames are amusingly skinny to them. We are wimps, even the strongest of us. And because of that, they often mistake us for Afghans. All right? Now I'm talking, this is the French military. We're talking about a partner nation of NATO, a Western military, but nothing compares with the U.S. forces. And they are impressive warriors. We have not come across bad ones, as strange as it may seem to you when you know how critical French people can be. (laughs) Even if some of them are a bit on the heavy side, all of them, all right, all of them provide us every day with lessons in infantry know-how. Beyond the wearing of a combat kit that never seemed to discomfort them, helmet strap, helmet, combat goggles, rifles, etc., the long hours of watch at the outpost never seemed to annoy them in the slightest. On the one square meter wooden tower above the perimeter wall, they stand the five consecutive hours in full battle uh, rattle and night vision goggles on top, their sight unmoving in the directions of likely danger. No distractions, no pauses. They are like statues night and days. At night, all movements are performed in the dark. Only a handful of subdued red lights indicate the occasional presence of a soldier on the move. Same with the vehicles whose lights are covered. Everything happens in pitch dark, even filling the fuel tanks with the whatever the GP pump is. Here we discover America as it is often depicted. Their values are taken to their paroxysm, often amplified by promiscuity and the loneliness of this outpost in the middle of the Afghan valley. Anyway, there's more. It goes on. If you want, I'll send you a link. It's kind of a neat story. And combat? (laughs) If you have seen Rambo, you've seen it all. Always coming to the rescue when one of our teams gets in trouble. Always in the shortest delay. That one of, that's one of their tricks. They switch from t-shirt and sandals to combat ready in three minutes. Arriving in, con, in contact with the enemy, the way they fight is simple and disconcerting. They just charge. They disembark and assault in stride. They bomb first and ask questions later, which cuts any pussyfooting short. 
honor, motherland, everything here reminds of that. The American flag floating in the wind above the outpost, just like the one on the post parcels. Even if recruits often originate from the hearth of American cities and gang territory, no one here has any goal other than to hold high and proud the star-spangled banner. Anyway, it goes on. There's a, it's a neat article. But it reminded me, he said, we were wimps. We were all wimps. We were small, we were thin, amusingly thin to the Americans. We could, we, they confused us with the Afghanis. I think, hmm, a nation, a power tall and smooth, feared far and wide, a people powerful and oppressive whose land the rivers baza. As far as rivers are concerned, there's no question we're a land of rivers. You know, rivers used to divide nations. Rivers were kind of helpful boundaries, right? You know, we say, we'll stay on our side of the river, you stay on your side of the river. Makes for a good uh, indisputable boundary. This is our side, that's your side, leave us alone. Um, but for a nation, and, and, and Egypt was a land of one river, right? The Nile River. And a lot of cultures built up around a single river. But this land, this eschatological land, is a land of multiplied rivers. It spans multiple rivers. Now, I can't build a case just on us because there's a lot of countries with rivers. You know how many uh, rivers Russia has? Let's see if we can get Elvira to name some of these for us. Um, a ton of rivers. China would make their own claim to a bunch of rivers. In fact, the destructive capacity of China's rivers might be, they might have a stronger case just based on the vocabulary alone of baza, simply because their rivers kill more people than our rivers do, all right? I think we've done a better job engineering our rivers. And so the power of our rivers is harnessed in hydroelectric capacity. They're trying to, but they still have so much flooding, it kills more than they want, they want us to know about. And so as not to offend the Indus River Valley or the Amazon, uh, India could make a claim. Brazil could make a claim. But I don't see the Brazilian army as a people tall and smooth that inspires fear worldwide. Not a country with a blue water navy, brown water navy. Not a country that sends envoys and tells foreign lands how to, how to run their business. All right? And what's happening here in this chapter is envoys are coming by sea and they're being turned around. Instead of telling us our business, we're telling you this business. You guys are going to go back and communicate to your land. In any event. If I'm right, we won't be here to see it. (laughs) The rapture of the church will take us home and and, uh, I believe the bulk of this will take place in the tribulation, because it culminates with the return of Christ. It culminates with them bringing their tribute to Mount Zion. All right? And so if we see it, we'll see it when we land on uh, Mount Zion with, uh, or we land on Mount Olivet on white horses, and we follow Jesus Christ in the battle at the Battle of Armageddon. So uh, stay tuned for that. All right. Interestingly enough, let's uh, get past this. These swift angels are commanded to communicate quickly with their homeland. And I think this is why the vocabulary switches. They're no longer envoys. They're no longer coming to dictate terms. They're now being sent back, and they're being sent with a heavenly message. That's why they're called angels. They're being sent with a heavenly message. 
And the message is about the uh, time of Jacob's trouble. It's about the time of harvest. It's about the time of Yahweh's dealings with Israel and with all the nations. These swift angels are commanded to communicate quickly with their homeland. Go, swift messengers, back to a nation tall and smooth. And when they get back there, here's the message they give. Interestingly enough, in verse 3, all you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth. That gets your attention. Because if you're going to go to a people, a people, whoever they are, is just a people. But what we learn in verse 3 is that people, again, whoever they are, that tall and smooth, powerful people, that people is actually leading the whole world. They are leading the whole world at the time that they are being addressed. They are exercising that leadership over the whole world in a way that, frankly, we're not doing right now. (laughs) Our country is not leading the world at the moment. All of you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth. This, this powerful nation, tall and smooth, is leading a world endeavor against Israel. As soon as the standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. He's calling them to their service in what they're going to do and bringing them into the, uh, into the warfare against, against Israel in the coming tribulation. See, one land dispatched these emissaries. But when they are returned as angels as Moloch messengers, the entire world is being addressed. It was one land that dispatched these emissaries, but the entire world is being addressed. The Bible is very clear when it starts addressing earth dwellers. (laughs) Okay? Does that get your attention? Earth dwellers. It's one of those idioms that you will go, well, duh. It's like boats on the surface of the water. Well, duh. Where else would they be? Earth dwellers. Well... Ah, then you start to realize, wait a minute. At the point when judgment is being pronounced upon the earth dwellers, God has already rescued his bride and brought them into heaven. There are heavenly dwellers that are with Jesus Christ that are looking down as trumpets and bowls and seals are being poured forth upon this fallen world. We have the expression repeatedly throughout Revelation, the earth dwellers, the earth dwellers, Revelation 3.10 and 6.10 and 8.13, earth dwellers. Maybe you'll adopt this vocabulary and we can uh, start talking about earth dwellers. Have some fun with it because then, uh, you know, the waitress won't know what we're talking about. We might ask, are you an earth dweller? (laughs) Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. To, to test those who dwell on the earth. So what's the answer? How do we escape this? Start a colony on the moon? <laughs> Start a colony on Mars? How do we escape this? Well, if you don't want to be coming under the judgment of the earth dwellers, I suggest you obtain heavenly citizenship by which when the trumpet sounds, you will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, Jesus Christ went to prepare a place for us 
And he said, when I come again, I will call you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We are waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. We are not earth dwellers. We're pilgrims. We're aliens and strangers. But we are not earth dwellers. Or we shouldn't be. That's not where our attention should be focused. We should be dwelling on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Not just Revelation 3.10, but 6.10 and 8.13 and 11.10 and more. It actually goes more than that. The uh, role of Antichrist who comes out to deceive the earth dwellers. Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are tribulational martyrs that are under the altar in heaven as the fifth seal is broken. The lamb broke the fifth seal underneath the altar, the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they have maintained. These are the ones crying out, How long, O God? How long, Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood on those who dwell on the earth? Earth dwellers. What we're seeing here in Isaiah 18 is we're seeing a message that's very compatible with tribulation. Message that's very compatible with Revelation 3, Revelation 6, Revelation 8, Revelation 11. Very compatible with the end times. Plus, of course, the fact that we already tied it into the end times when we connected the woes. The woes from 18.1 with the woe in, in uh, 17.12. I failed to do that, didn't I? I failed to show that to you. Ooh, what's that? Don't do that. Isaiah 18. All right. We have that, alas, O land of whirring wings, right? I like to color. And I like to color. I use visual filters. It jumps out at you. That's your hoy right there. And that hoy right there matches the hoy we had in chapter 17 and verse 12. <clears throat> in fact, we had a whole lot of hoys in chapter 5. And they jumped out again and again and again. Hoy in verse 8. Hoy in verse 11. So you can get your notes there on the hoys. 18, 20, 21, 22. <laughs> that chapter was filled with a lot of woes. All right? Jumps out at you, gets your attention. At least as you're reading the, the Hebrew. I like to color it. That jogs my mind as I'm reading the English there. All right. So we know that chapter 18 is eschatological. Chapter 18 is end times. It's connected to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is eschatological. Chapter 17 is end times. We put them together in their immediate context and we understand this to be eschatological. There's no proper name given for the nation. It was not a known nation in Isaiah's generation. His, his, his kings wouldn't have known anything about this people far and wide, this people tall and, and smooth. Uh, the last references are 8.13 and 11.10 here in Revelation. <clears throat> 8.13 and 11.10. Revelation 8.13, I looked and I heard an, uh, an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. You think this is connected to Isaiah 18 at all? Woe to those who dwell in the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You know, that's after four angels sound. Just wait. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait till five, six, and seven sound their trumpets. You earth dwellers are in, uh, 
heap big trouble. Finally, Revelation 11 and verse 10, when uh, the two witnesses are executed in Jerusalem, uh, the whole world is going to celebrate. Two prophetic witnesses. Some people think it's a resurrected Dave, uh, Moses and Elijah. I think it's two prophets of their own generation. They're lifted up by God in their own day and age. And uh, when they, and they strike all kinds of plagues, and just like Moses and Elijah did. But then they get killed. And uh, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, mystically called Sodom in Egypt. It's actually Jerusalem, where also the Lord was crucified. And um, those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. See, for the longest time, people used to puzzle. How can, how can they uh, see these dead bodies like that? <laughs> Didn't know about webcams, right? Didn't know about live streaming across the internet. Nowadays, we got the technology. They can see a dead body laying there all over the world. We can even conduct a wedding and have it Skyped into all kinds of places. Those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another. It's going to become a new holiday. It's going to be Dead Prophet Day. And we'll send, let's send presents. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth the earth dwellers. That's who is being addressed in chapter 18. These swift angels are commanded to communicate quickly with their homeland. One land is dispatched, dispatched these emissaries, but the entire world is being addressed when they return. A standard is raised, a trumpet is blown, and the Lord achieves the ultimate pruning ever displayed on the earth. Verses 4 through 6. As soon as a standard is raised, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus the Lord has told me. And there is a monster harvest about to come. And this nation is going to lead the way. This nation, tall and smooth, is going to lead the way. The whole world is going to lead the way. But who's in charge? God's in charge. We've seen it before. We see it here. We're going to see it again. Even when it's Antichrist and Satan leading those forces of evil against the Jewish people, it is still Yahweh who has sovereign control. It is still Yahweh who says, this army marches under my banner. We had that back in uh, chapter 5 and verse 26. Uh, We saw another glimpse of it in chapter 13, verses 2 and 4. A standard is raised, a trumpet is blown. Everybody wants to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. We got a whole lot more war to come before we can get to the, uh, before we can visualize world peace under the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 5.26. Yahweh himself will lift up a standard to the distant nation. He will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. Behold, it will come with speed swiftly. How many nations have the logistics to put military forces on different continents? You realize what it takes to send, to project your military power across the globe? In any event. Uh, chapter 13, verse 2 and verse 4. 
all the logistics and all the resupply and all the transportation, the airlift, the sea lift, everything necessary. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones to execute my anger. The sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people, the sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. Why is it in the 20th century we had the greatest military endeavors ever in the history of mankind? World War I, the war, the war to end all wars, until World War II, the war to end all wars. The greatest human endeavor with more nations, more military might, more... What's the next one going to be like? What's it going to be like when it's Jesus Christ himself that brings them in and gathers them together to afflict his anger upon his people? being described here. The Lord achieves the ultimate pruning ever displayed on the earth. And uh, it's described here in chapter 18. It comes back in chapter 26. The pruning. When do you wait to do your pruning? And when do you, when do you get your harvest? God can't wait. That's too long. Okay? Let's look at verses 4 through 6 here. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, just as soon as you first start to see that, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. But why would you do that? Why would you cut it down so early? And why do you keep cutting it down? You keep cutting, you keep cutting, you keep cutting in the spring, in the fall, in the, in the, winter, in the uh, autumn. What are you going to have left for the winter if that's what you've done all season long? Okay. He will cut off the sprigs of the pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. And it's not like he wants it. It's not like he needs it. He's not even using it. He's just leaving them together, throwing them in piles, left together for mountain birds of prey, and for beasts of the earth. We want to do more studies on this. You've got the bird metaphor for the angelic realm, and you've got beasts of the earth for the human realm. And we understand that in the uh, warfare of the, of the Great Tribulation, it is both angelic and human in the participation. And the birds of the prey will spend the summer feeding on them, and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. And what's going to be left? It's interesting, this uh, pruning. God uses this language when he disciplines us in John 15 and verse 2. The pruning, he expects us to bear fruit and he prunes us so that we do bear fruit. Then the scavenging that's mentioned, another parallel with Revelation. The resultant scavenging is also revealed in Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. So I believe if you're trying to teach Revelation and you've not taught the prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially Daniel. I mean, a bare minimum, you've got to do Daniel. But you really need all of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Don't you dare call him a minor prophet. (laughs) He's key in Revelation. Hosea, Amos. All right, Revelation 19. Here's some scavenging. 
I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. Why did they assemble to make war against him? Because a banner was lifted up on a bare hill and a trumpet was sounded. Because the, the envoys were returned back to their homeland and the message was given. Gather your armies for the war. Against him who sat on the horse against his army. And they're going try to uh, try to hinder us. Verse 11, I'm, I'm running out of time, but this is, this is too good to miss. I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse. Verse 11, Revelation 19, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head are many diadems. And we're with him too. Verse 14, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. (laughs) Man, looking forward to that. I am looking forward to that. I survived one war already. But the next one? (laughs) The next one when I'm immortal? When I'm in a resurrection body? (laughs) How how fun is that going to be? All right. Look forward to that too. Finally then, verse 7, this distant powerful land will submit to the Lord of hosts at Mount Zion. This distant powerful land will submit to the Lord of hosts at Mount Zion. They're going to bring their homage or their homage, however you want to pronounce that, okay? We all pronounce it different ways and it bugs the French guy, okay? Homage, homage. We're going to bring it. Every nation will bring it. Zechariah 14, in fact, says if they don't bring it, Jesus Christ turns off their rain. I'm talking about the water falling from the sky. Isaiah 18, 7. You'll just have to look these up on your own. Related over to Isaiah 45, 14. Psalm 68, 29 through 31. Sorry we didn't have time to get to these. These are good. Zephaniah 3. We were there earlier. Zephaniah 3, verses 10 and 11. And then Zechariah 14, 16. Okay, that's the capstone. That ties it all together. In the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, Gentile kings will be obligated. Once per year, they must arrive at the Feast of Trumpets. They are the Feast of Tabernacles. They must arrive to bring their tribute year by year by year to worship Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. All right. Next week, we go to Egypt. See, we get to travel through time and space there's no jet lag in any of this. We get to go to Egypt next week. Nah, they don't have a happy message either. <laughs> okay? Uh, we'll deal with that. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And Father, sometimes we, we plunge into things and our heads spin and we say, wow, there is just so much more to learn, so much more to study. But on a day like today, Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ controls history that you are in complete and total control. We're not scared of the newspaper and the headlines and the current events and what might happen with the economy, what might happen in, in, uh, with a bunch of angry Muslims and what it might happen with other things. Father, we know 
We know that your purpose is what's to be accomplished, and your purpose is to magnify and glorify your Son. And so I pray on this day that we would have that same attitude, that we would be your fellow workers. Today, Father, I pray that each person here would become one that glorifies Jesus Christ. And as such, Father, that we would be your fellow workers. Work in us, Father, that which glorifies your Son. And I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with our closing hymn.